The late historian Arthur M. Schlesinger, not a believer, a liberal Democrat, speechwriter for President Kennedy and others. My point is, he's not a preacher. (laughs) But he hit it on the head when he said this, when he stated as a historian about our where our Western society has come. And he said, it is marked by, quote, inextinguishable discontent. You cannot even fathom how discontented people we are. In today's world, the quest is better, improved, new, (laughs) I've pretty much got to figure it out when in food products, when it's new and improved, that means it's smaller portions <laughs> and more money. That's what they mean. We want a better job. We want better pay. We want a better boss. We want better relationships. We want a better car. I've taken up golf for the last couple of years and I tell you one thing, golf companies have made millions every year putting out a new driver just to give a guy an extra five yards. I mean, they'll shell out seven, eight, nine hundred dollars for a driver just to go an extra five yards. And I'm right there with them. I've not shelled out that kind of money, but I wouldn't do it. I'll tell you what, if I could. Most Americans live endlessly for the next thing. Next weekend, if you go to the bank on Friday afternoon and ask everybody how they are, oh, it's the weekend. Funny how they, we've replaced that term, the Lord's Day, with the weekend now, isn't it? Nobody says the Lord's Day anymore. But it's the Lord's Day. It's not the weekend. We want the next vacation, the next purchase, the next experience. We are never satisfied. And as a result of that, we are discontent. And too often, we are envious of those who have attained what we feel like we have not. Listen to this verse. We're starting a new series this morning called Learning Contentment. Verse number 11 of the fourth chapter of Philippians Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, how in the world could the apostle be so bold as to say, I've learned how to be content? Because he knew, and this is a quote-worthy moment, he knew that contentment lies in not what he has, but whose he is. My contentment lies in not what I have, but in whose I am. When I come into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then I can understand truly what it means. He has me. I have him. I have all of eternity with that. So I'm excited. I really prayed and felt like God wants us to speak about this matter of contentment, and as I began to think about the, uh, the overview of the series, I began to realize there are so many scriptures about it, and 
There are also misconceptions about contentment, and some people just give up and have a fatalistic mindset and think that's contentment. We're going to talk about what contentment is and how to achieve it and what false contentment is. And so I'm looking forward to this this morning. Let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to learn the grace of contentment. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the mind of Christ. Thank you for Brother Paul, Lord, what a, what a man of God who gave his life, Lord, for the gospel. Help us to learn what it means to be content. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be staying there this morning, although we'll jump around just a little bit. But let me just say, I'm so grateful that each of you are here. I've been, uh, you know, just thinking about when we were singing there a few minutes ago, and we were laughing, and we were shouting, and it's so healthy. I was listening to that drums on that first chorus, you know, and uh, man, how, how wonderful it is to be able just to beat the drum. I mean, folks, this is not a funeral service. And to get up here and to say, you know what, this is, uh, we are here to lift people's spirits. So many times people during the week just beat down and so much darkness in their life. They come to church and just get all that light and thank God for it. So I'm proud of you for being here and may God reward you for this moment. Now, in the book of Philippians, uh, we uh, come to this beautiful letter to the church of the people at Philippi, a Greek city. Contentment uh, is a very, very rich word in Scripture. There's much in Scripture about it. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6 says, godliness is good, but when you have contentment with it, you've got something really great. It's great gain. Verse Timothy 6 and verse 8 says, and having food and raiment. What? No. Food and raiment and a, and, a, and a Honda. No, food and raiment. If I have food and a roof over my head or clothes, let us therewith be content. And the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 13 verse 5 said, and be content with such things as you have. For as he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I have Christ. Contentment is not just a suggestion for happiness. It is a command of God. I am commanded by God to live a contented life. And yet most people don't experience. In fact, most Christians miss out on contentment as well. And strangely, the strange thing about contentment is typically the more that we have, the more discontent we become. Strange. You take some person just lives a very simple life, doesn't hardly have anything. I mean, when we were there in that South Pacific Island, Vanuatu, in the jungles, we walked into the hut, several people there. I mean, I had nothing. Now, when I say nothing, I mean nothing. <laughs> they didn't have a chair to sit on. I told my wife, I said, I don't know how they do it, because I mean, if I squatted on that little floor very long. They'd have to pry me up with a crane. But uh, they, they don't have chairs. They don't have beds. I even asked the missionaries, they don't even have pillows. They don't have blankets. I didn't even, they didn't have clothes. It's like, what? Where is it? What are they? He said, that's just what they, they just live. And then they just put their arm like that and lay on it for a pillow. And 
I thought, my goodness, unbelievable. And yet those people were so joyous. They have nothing. We have so much, and yet we are the most discontent people. I have seen people have an absolute meltdown at the Starbucks counter because it was two degrees too hot. And uh, I read about a guy this week that came back and uh, beat up the manager of a pizza restaurant because the guy made his pizza wrong. And uh, like, man, chill out. It's just a pizza, dude. And that's what the guy told him. And the guy flipped out. I want you to follow along. In fact, let's read verses 10 through 12. Paul was a satisfied man. How did he get there? Let's all read it together, if you would, out loud. Ready? I think it's good for you to hear your own self read these words. Ready? Begin. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you all also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound everywhere, and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, uh, you don't have it on the PowerPoint here, but let me read verse 13. I can do all things, because it connects there. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Now, the Apostle Paul loved these precious saints at Philippi. They were very dear to his heart. And so he's expressing his gratitude uh, that they uh, had loved him so much. Recently, they had had a renewed opportunity to invest in his ministry And they had sent a love gift to Paul by the hands of a missionary brother, Epaphroditus. They uh, loved on Paul, and it was a beautiful moment. Paul was so excited to have heard from them, as well as to receive the wonderful gift. Now, a little context here. Paul is writing this letter. He's been allowed to write this letter while he's chained to a Roman soldier in a, under house arrest in Rome. He was in a little apartment, maybe a flat in the Rome somewhere. He was in isolation. He uh, was not able to minister, not able to move about. He lived with meager surroundings. He really didn't have all the things he was used to, and he, he didn't have what you'd call a real exciting, uh, beautiful life with so many things, typically. But uh, he was raised rather well-to-do there in Cilicia. He was the child of a tent maker, a very rich merchant, and uh, he was uh, quite a fellow. He was quite a mover and shaker in his life. And yet for the gospel, he was now sent to Rome. There he was, very trying time. One of my dear friends once told me years ago, in the ministry, it's kind of like the ocean. (laughs) He said, tides come in and tides go out. I was talking with a new young pastor in Lodi yesterday, and he was walking around looking at the building and very impressed. And I said, I will tell you, I said, it's, it's a blessing, but I tell you, it's, it's, uh, we've had lots of ups and downs over the years, and that's, that's the way the ministry is. It, the tide comes in and the tide goes out. Well, this was Paul's ministry, and this was definitely a low tide moment, guaranteed. And yet, look what he says in verse 11. He said, I'm content. Now, the Greek word there, content, means self-sufficient or 
self-satisfied or self-supporting. He said, here's what I have learned. I have learned to be self-contained. These uh, trailers, these uh, RVs that people have, I mean, they're just remarkable. They're beautiful. They have all these, and they're self-contained. They have everything that you would ever possibly need. They figure out where to put everything. Paul said, I'm like a I'm like a little RV. I am self-contained. I have everything I need, nothing I need anymore. Benjamin Franklin said, contentment makes poor men rich, and discontent makes rich men poor. Now, Paul said, the contentment I'm talking about is not like the Stoics. There was another group of philosophers in his day that were called Stoics. Now, the Stoic concept, and really we stole the word stoicism from them, they believed that it was possible to become indifferent to everything. And then, and only then, you could become content. So their contentment was based on indifference. What they would say is something like this. Teach yourself. You could just see, you know, some little Um, Eastern religion master telling somebody, you know, teach yourself this. If your kitchen utensil breaks, say, I don't care. And then uh, go outside. And if your dog is dead, say, I don't care. And then you go and if there's no water in your well, say, I don't care. Just keep saying, I don't care until you become content. Now, Friends, that concept of contentment is completely unbiblical. And uh, God doesn't ask us to deny the reality of things that are happening in our life. He's just saying, learn what you have in Christ. Look at verse 12. He said, I know both how to be abased, I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed. Now, highlight that word or circle that word or at least take note of that word. That word means, I know the secret. I know the secret. It actually was a Greek word that came from when a person would be initiated into like a secret society, they would have certain secrets. There are certain societies even today in our culture where uh, if you shake their hands, they have a certain handshake or they have certain words that they say and there are certain little secret Uh, things that identify you as a part of that society. Paul said, I have been given the secret handshake (laughs) by God. I have been instructed. I, I have become an insider at the truth of learning contentment. And so he said, here are the three secrets in these next few couple of verses. Here are the three secrets that I have found I've been given to them by God to become a self-contained unit. What is it? Number one, my contentment comes from a conviction in God's sovereign providence. A conviction in God's sovereign providence. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord. I am stuck here next to this Roman prisoner, but I think you ought to pray for him more than you ought to pray for me. That poor guy, I've been witness to him all day long. Like the one politician said, if you hear that I'm in a fight with a grizzly bear, pray for the grizzly bear. And uh, Paul was 
hooked up next to this uh, soldier, and he said, I know you want to pray for me, but you better pray for him because I've been witnessing to him all day long. I rejoiced in the Lord. I'm uh, here next to this guy. I'm not able to go out like I'd like, but God's working this out so that I can write some letters to you. And he said, I'm so excited that at last your care has come back, meaning their financial gifts had come and the, sent by Epaphroditus. But notice what he said. He doesn't, he doesn't get too mad at them. He's not, uh, he's not uh, holding them over the fire here. He says, you were careful. Unfortunately, many people aren't careful. They don't even care about giving. But they were careful. They, they wanted to give. They wanted to support the work. But they lacked opportunity. They just weren't able to get the money to them. It's been 10 years. And so it's been a long time. It's been a decade or more. And so they were, he was so excited to get the money, not just to have the work or money for ministry, but just that he would hear from them. I know even today, 2,000 years since Paul, it's amazing how crazy it is just to get money to our missionary in the Philippines. I mean, it's ridiculous. You can't put it in the bank. You can't send it in the mail. It already never gets there. You, the only thing you can do is wire it, basically. It's like, and then even then, it's ridiculous. Put a fee on it. I mean, it's like 2,000 years, and it takes all this just to get money to people in the Philippines. But you know, and a lot we have, and we have all the things today. Back then, they didn't have that. And so he said, I know you wanted to support me, but you couldn't do it. He said, I'm very excited because now your care of me has flourished. And that's a horticultural term there, flourished. He said, it's blossoming and it's beautiful. It smells wonderful. He said, I just love it. But he said, in the meantime, God has put inside of me a confidence that everything's okay because God is sovereign. He was certain that God in due time would order his circumstances so that his needs would be met. Until then, he waited in believing prayer until God made it happen. That's it. I'm just going to Wait on God, keep praying until God makes it happen. He knew that the seasons of life were controlled by a sovereign God. And until we learn that, we're going to be discontent. Discontentment comes, are you listening, because we want to control everything. We want to control what we get. <laughs> we want to control when we get it. And God just has a whole different timing. I mean, God has a totally different time frame and a totally different concept of what we need when we need it. Really, it comes down to God's providence, and that's the point here, providence. What is providence? Well, look at the word. What's the first part of the word? Provide. Providence is simply God providing. Now, providence is God's providing in very unique ways. Often, far beyond what we would have ever imagined. We lose a job and we're so upset and then a new job, way better in a new place. We get kicked out of a house and we're like, oh my goodness. And then God provides another one way better. We never would have probably got there had not we had to leave that house. I mean, God provides. Providence is God providing. But actually, the actual word, if you were to do an etymology of the word, it comes from two words, pro and video, actually. Pro, meaning before, and video, the word we get video from, is uh, to see something. And so providence actually means that God videos something before it happens. Pro video. 
God sees it before we ever need it. And God has it all planned out. And that's what the gospel writer said, that before we ever even ask, God knows what we need. Sometimes when we pray, we think we're, we're illuminating God to our needs. No, we're just, uh, we, folks, God never is surprised by our prayer request. In fact, uh, we're told in Romans that the Holy Spirit puts every, uh, every God-ordained prayer request in our heart. So it actually comes from Him, goes back to Him. But we're just honoring God with our prayers. We're not alerting God in our prayer. But a contented person knows God's providence is going to work it out. He sees before. That's what Joseph said. Joseph was able to take a step back and he said, you know, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Mordecai looked at Esther and said, you know what, my sweet little niece? He said, I want to tell you something. For such a time as this, such a time as this, God has done this. It's the time for God and God is doing this work. And Paul was basically saying, as long as God is in charge, everything's going to be okay. A contented heart is knowing that God is ordering everything for our good and for His glory. And when we come to that conclusion, we will experience contentment and not before. Basically, pray as hard as you can, and then work as hard as you can, and then be content. God is in control of the results. I remember reading years ago the story of Abraham Lincoln and how he actually got into the legal world and eventually into politics. You may have read a biography of Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite historical American characters. He was on the front porch of a little country store in Illinois with his partner, Barry. Business was gone, and Barry asked the question, how much longer can we keep this going? Lincoln said, I don't know, but maybe we could just sell everything, and if I could have enough left over, at least, to buy one book, he wanted to go into law. He said, if I could have enough for Blackstone's commentary on English law, that'd be the greatest day of my life, but I don't even think we have enough left over for that. About that time, as they were sitting on the front porch of their business, a strange-looking wagon was coming up the road. The man driving the wagon looked at Lincoln and said, I'm trying to move my family out west. I'm out of money, but I got a good barrel here, and I'd sell it to you for 50 cents. Abraham's Lincoln thought, I don't even have any money hardly, and I, why do I need a barrel? But he looked at that man's eyes and looked over at his wife. She was just pleading. And he said, all right. So he bought the man's barrel, 50 cents, last 50 cents he had. All day long, his partner just mocked him and teased him for buying that barrel. Late in the evening, Lincoln walked out and sat down and just decided to look inside that barrel. Looked inside the barrel and saw something at the bottom there and put his long arms down into that barrel, fumbled around, felt something hard down there, pulled it out, and when he saw it, he was petrified. He could not believe it. It was Blackstone's commentary on English law. He said, there I was standing on the porch with the one book I wanted. And he said, his own words, I stood there holding the book. I looked up to the heavens and there came a deep impression on me that God had something for me to do. You know, that's when we realize God has a plan for my life. God's providence, He sees before. I can be content then. Number two, 
Not only is it conviction in God's sovereign providence, but it is satisfaction in life's changing provision. Look at verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, now I'm found out that you can actually be happy with less. Now the Western world, that is not our concept. Our concept in the American society is that life is a process of man just meeting his needs. Now, who sold us on that concept? That's humanism. Since there's no God, and since my reason for existence is not to glorify God, basically my concept, my reason for living is to enjoy life. That's called hedonism. Humanism and hedonism are really the two prongs of this concept of discontent. Now, what is it that defines needs in our culture? Apostle Paul was saying, you know what, I, I don't have everything I would like, but it's okay. God, God's got it figured out, and I'm okay. I've learned. Now, he didn't say, boy, I've just, I'm just so thankful I was born with the ability not to have any needs. That's not the Apostle Paul. He said, I've learned. It was not a natural thing. And folks, I don't think it's natural for any of us to, I can't imagine how it'd be natural for any of us not to want something else. I mean, we want things in our life. Paul wasn't ignoring hard times. He was definitely wishing things would be different. He was just simply saying that um, if that's what God plans, if that's, his, uh, that's what His provision is, I'm okay with that. But the goal of advertising and TV and radio and social media now especially is to basically make us discontent so that we'll think we'll need something, so that we'll buy something. We must have it. Everything is a need now. Have you noticed that? Everything is a need. And uh, we, they have all these magazines. You know, I, I didn't know I needed some of this stuff until I opened up some of those things. Like, man, I didn't know I need that. I need that, and I need that, and I need that. And then you go on, and these ads come on, and you never knew you needed these things. And I see some of these ads that remind me of what it takes to be a man in some big old hunky truck, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's what I need. I need to be a man. You know, men don't drive Volkswagens. They drive big old trucks. And I think, then uh, I go look at the, how much it costs, and I say, okay, uh, men do drive Volkswagens, that's for sure. But, uh, but today, everything's a need. Everything. Did you know that there were millions of women in our country who didn't want to be liberated, who didn't want to be empowered, until they found out they needed to be empowered? Did you know that there were millions of young people who didn't want to live in sexual liberation until they found out they needed to live in sexual liberation because their egos were being repressed and they needed to exhibit themselves? One, many times a day, we feel like that our goal in life is simply to meet our needs, and if we're meeting our needs, then we're okay. Some people even need to feel free to live like a homosexual. Children need to be able to express themselves from the bondage of parental repression. I read about over here in East Bay and Alameda, a new uh, a high school there, and has adopted a new dress code. Did you notice that this fall? Their new dress code is... The only thing you have to do is cover your genitals. That's it. 
Anything else is okay. Nothing is, I mean, they can come in pajamas. They can come bearing everything. It's like unbelievable. Why is that? Because it's sexist to say that we might ought to be modest. It's sexist to, and it's body shaming if we tell her that, you know, they maybe you ought to cover up just a little, you know, it might be a nice idea. But uh, they, today we need to express ourselves. We need to uh, uh, say things like, we want to have them. And so what does a modern Christianity do? Modern Christianity looks at that and says, hey, I got an idea. Let's come up with a new doctrine. And so over the last decade or so, or last generation, this health and wealth gospel has come along. And they say, guess what? You can have everything you want and still be a follower of Christ. In fact, it even shows you're a better follower of Christ, the richer you are. And those televangelists are always reminding us that God doesn't want you sick and God doesn't want you poor. And (laughs) you're like, really? I thought I just read some place in the Bible where the Bible says that God made his own son poor for our sake. Huh, that's kind of strange. Well, anyway, the truth is, though, modern society and even the church, the modern church seems like just follow right along that everything is about me. It's inextinguishable discontent. Paul knew that the chief end of man is to worship and enjoy God. But today we have people running to counselors saying, I need. A woman will go to a counselor and saying, my needs aren't being met in my marriage. Oh, really? Your husband is not uh, working? Oh, yeah, he goes to work. But, uh, oh, he's not bringing, uh, buying food for the home? Oh, yeah, he brings food for the home. But uh, what do you mean? I, uh, but my needs, my needs aren't being met. No, it's needs that you think aren't being met. Today, we live in a country where we have so many needs now. I didn't even know I needed spotted owls until the Sierra Club came along. Now I realize how much we need our spotted owls. But today, we live in a society where so much is reminding us, you need this. You need this. And the Apostle Paul said, you know what? I have learned that God's provision is His business. God provides when He wants. He provides as much as He wants. And I've just learned that I really don't need what I think I need. They say a strange thing happened in America's history. They said right after World War I, American advertising changed dramatically. From conveying product information to manufacturing desire, businesses feared that because of the war, people had become too frugal. And so to rev up the economy, products were then associated with images. If you smoke a certain cigarette, you're glamorous or personal identity. And so marketing moved from fulfilling needs to creating needs. Someone once said very wisely, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. And that's American society today. Paul said, you know what? I've just learned that when God gives it, it's his, he sees it before. He, it's his, his providence is his business. And then his provision is his business. How much he wants me to have. You know, there's no one level of lifestyle that's spiritual. Some people get all upset because people have lots of money and they're all mad at them. Folks, if God makes a person rich, that, and praise God for it. Amen. They can be such a blessing. 
Abraham was rich. David was rich. Solomon was rich. Job was rich. Many of the greatest people in the Bible were rich. But then again, the same thing is also true. Some of the poorest people in the Bible were also great Christians. God has no one lifestyle that's the way that we're supposed to live. It's just whatever his providence, whatever his provision, I've just learned to be content. I don't have to have this. I don't have to have that. I'm very happy with where I'm at. And then finally, the secret, his self-containment came from separation in earth's temporary portion. Not only a conviction that God's providence is sovereign and that his provision is what he makes it, but that life is so temporary, my portion is okay. Look at verse 12. I know how to be abased. Not that I like it. And I know how to abound. I kind of like that, but um, everywhere, no matter what it is, all things, the things of my life, I have been taught, I've instructed. There's that word again. I've I've found the secret. I found the self-containment, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He said, I have learned life as a cycle. Now, I don't like the poor times. I don't like the tide going out. I don't like winter. I like summer. I don't like, uh, I don't like the, even, you know, the dark. I like the light. But he said, I've learned that whatever God does, that's his business. Paul said, I'm able to get along with little food or a lot of food. I can have new clothes or I can have old clothes. It just really doesn't make any difference. I'm, I'm not going to get bitter because I don't have what I want. And I'm not going to get proud because I have more than I want. It's just I have what I have. It's a great way to live, kind of a holy ambivalence to life. It's like, you know what? Every once in a while I get that feeling that, you know, for for the most part when I'm driving along, I never look at something and think, man, that's just wow. How would me, boy, if I could drive that car, you know, honestly, for the most part, it doesn't even, my blood pressure doesn't go up at all. It's like, I don't even care. But the other day I was driving, Pauline and I were in Sacramento, we were driving downtown, and there was a 1959 or 58 Porsche convertible, one of those little things looks like a clamshell, and that thing was all restored. I looked at that thing, I thought, my goodness, I need that car right there. That is, that is my car, I, that's my dream car. And I told her, I said, that, look at that car, it's some, some little 20-something-year-old nitwit driving that little thing, I thought, what in the world? Good night. I wanted just to crash him just because. And, uh, but the truth is, folks, honestly, Paul said, you know what? If you, if you get to have, if, I ever, if that would happen, if I had a car like that, I would sure say like Paul said, I'm learning to abound. Amen. <laughs> I'm learning to. Say, so would you buy a big old beautiful Mercedes? No, I don't think it would. But if, someone, if some of you want to give me your Mercedes, I would learn how to abound. Amen. I'm, I'm learning to abound. That's what I'm doing right now. And it's okay. It's really, don't, don't, we're not going to judge you, folks, if you have good stuff. And that's what Paul was saying here. He said, I've, honestly, he said, I've, I've been poor all my life, for, for most of his adult life at least. He said, I've been without, and, and, and I can do that. It's temporary. Life comes and Life goes, stuff is good, stuff's not good. That's the way it is. He said, I've also had to learn how to abound. He said, when people are just lavishing things on me, he said, it's okay. 
I remember years ago when we were just, of course, we've always lived on a single income, but, and uh, we've always had enough, and, but a lot of times not more than we'd like, and especially since around Christmas time, it's always a strain with a large family and nine kids. And I remember one Christmas years ago, we uh, went to mom and dad Pollock's house, and boy, they just loaded the kids up at Christmas with presents, you know, little things, not real expensive things. Um, then we went to mom and dad Yadder's house, and we couldn't even get all the kids and all the presents in the car after mom and dad Pollock's house. But then we went to the Yetter's house. I mean, they just loaded us up. And I remember just like stuffing it everywhere you could. You couldn't even see kids in the car. It's just piles up here, stuffing the trunk. And for some reason that year, we would just, it seemed like it was a tough year. And I remember driving away just thinking how incredibly rich I felt, like unbelievable. Just, wow, thank you, Jesus. I, I just felt so undeserving and so rich at that moment. And there's nothing wrong with that. God, Paul said, you know what? Those are great moments to abound. But he said, I'm just as happy at the times when it's just a little bit. You'd say, well, how could that happen? Because he said, life is a cycle. All pain is temporary. He'd say, well, my pain isn't temporary. Yes, it is. All pain is temporary. It's a cycle. You may have a little more. You may have a little less. And eventually, as a Christian, we won't have any. We'll have a new body. But all pain is temporary. I, I guarantee it. And your situation, no matter how you think it is, just not going to be any different. It will change. It will. And it just does change. That's what, and the, that's the whole deal about God. He, since He is a God of providence, He sees before. He has pro video. He just does what He does. And when it's time for Him to change that, He will. He'll change your loneliness. He'll change the pain in your body. He'll change the pain in your spirit. And this week I've been praying for so many of you by name. I was meditating on Psalm 65 verse 2 where the psalmist reminded God of his name. He said, oh, thou that hearest prayer. <laughs> that was his title. You're the prayer hearing God. It's not like these other nitwit gods that can't hear prayer. They're just a stupid piece of wood or something. But he said, you're the prayer-hearing God. And then it said, unto thee shall all flesh come. And I realized how fleshly we are. We're, we're just, we have so many pains and so many aches. And I prayed for so many of you by name, so many of you. And I was thinking, you probably don't know that your pastor was there just asking, oh, God, take away that pain in the head there, sister so-and-so, and God, dear, help that dear brother who can't hardly walk, and help that other brother who's having pain in his back, and that sister's having, and then people having heartaches. Oh, God, help that young lady's heart's broken about love, and so many people in the church are just praying, and prayed for my wife, and prayed for myself, because we are fleshly people. We are fleshly people, and that's not a bad thing. It's just that's the way we're made. And yet it's all temporary because God, just, life is a cycle. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, it's just, it's temporary. It's just, all pain is temporary. The tide may be going out right now and it's, it's really hard, but thank God the tide comes in. It's a better day today. Thank God it's a better day. I feel better. I have more peace. That's the way life is. It, thank God it doesn't always stay as bad as we think it's going to stay. Thank God. It always changes one way or the other, it always changes. 
said, well, I'll tell you one thing, pastor, I'll be glad when it does. Well, amen. Amen. And it may be sooner than you think. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, Paul said, for our light affliction, and he's not trying to minimize people's pain. He's just saying, I want you to get this. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, (laughs) worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He said, I, somewhere along the line, he said, I got it. He said, I took the heavenly scales, and on one side, I put all my pain, I put all my troubles, I put all my adversity, I put all my needs on one side, and then I put on the other side the glory of God, and that's going to be revealed in me someday. And I put that on the other side, and man, all my pain, adversity, practically flew off. You know, like it was when we were in grade school, and the, we sat on the one side of the seesaw, and the big fat kid got on the other side, you know, and it shot us over there, you man, or maybe you were the fat kid. I was kind of the little fluffy kind myself. And, uh, but there we are. God, Paul said, all my troubles were here. And then when God's glory got on that scale, he said, notice what it said, a weight of, when, the, when the weight of glory hit the scales of life, my adversities just went flying. They were gone. And then he said, that's why while we look not at the things which are seen. That's why I don't look at things that are seen. This is not a play on words. He said, I look at things which are not seen. What? How do you look at things that aren't seen? Okay, well, I'm looking at something you can't see. Of course, he was looking with a different eye, wasn't he? Not a physical eye, but the eye of faith. For the things which are seen are temporal. And they're just temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. He said, I've learned in life, major on eternal, minor on temporal. And you'll be okay. God's providence is His business. God's provision is His business. And everything is temporary. It's just a, my portion for the moment. It's a cycle. It's temporary. It is what it is. And it is right now. I can do this. Once a man went to his minister for counseling. He was in the midst of serious financial collapse. I've lost everything, he bemoaned. The pastor wisely said, oh, I'm sorry. So here to, to hear that you lost your faith. Oh, no, I, I, I haven't lost my faith. Oh, I see. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that you've lost your character. I didn't say I lost my character. I still have my character. Oh, I see. I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your salvation. That's not what I said. I didn't say I lost my salvation. Well, then, sir, you have your faith, you have your character, and you have your salvation. It seems like to me, then, you've not lost anything that matters. He said, I guess you're right. Maybe we ought to be like the old Puritan who sat down to pray at a meal of bread and water. He bowed his head and he declared, all this, (laughs) and Jesus too. 
All this and Jesus too? Man, we used to have a Bible college teacher, Dr. Eli Haru, and he'd mock us, Bible college students, for all our complaining, you know. Poor me, poor me, all I have is God. <laughs> all I have is God. All I have is God. All this and Jesus too? Man, I'm the richest man ever. I'm the richest man. I have all this and Jesus too. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.